all about you, Jesus. Thank you, Hannah. Back in the 1950s and 60s, there was a popular syndicated comic strip called Pogo. Some of you may remember Pogo and his little animal friends had a lot of wisdom considering Pogo was just a possum. And there was one particular strip where Pogo had some pretty good insights. See, Pogo in this particular strip, he was sitting by the swamp and he was fishing. And he looks over onto the swamp and he sees a little duck swimming up to him. And the little duck swims up on the shore, waddles over and sits down beside Pogo as Pogo's fishing. And the little duck turns to Pogo and asks him the question, Have you seen my cousin? My cousin is migrating north by kitty car. Pogo has a confused look on his face and responds, By kitty car, why don't he fly? To which the duck responds, oh, my cousin, he's afraid to fly. He's afraid he's going to fall off. Pogo looks a little confused. Well, why doesn't he swim? Oh, my cousin never swims. He gets seasick. To which Pogo, in utter frustration, says to the little duck, when your cousin decided to be a duck, he entered the wrong business. Pretty insightful, isn't it? Let me ask you, have you ever thought, in all honesty, a similar thing about other Christians around you? Have you ever looked at a Christian that's been a Christian for a long time and kind of in frustration said, when you decided to be a Christian, maybe you entered the wrong business? Because sometimes we look at Christians around us and it doesn't seem like they're doing the the most basic things that a Christian is supposed to do, right? Haddon Robinson, you may not know the name, but he's a very well-known trainer of pastors and preachers that just passed away a few years ago. He's written several books uh, training people how to preach. Those were two of the textbooks I used in Bible college when I was being taught how to preach. And Haddon Robinson uh, read that comic strip years ago, and here's what he said in response to Pogo's words. He said this. He said, Blessed is the duck who, when he decides to be a duck, does what ducks are supposed to do. That's not bad, is it? Blessed is the duck, when he decides to be a duck, does what ducks are supposed to do. And we could say much the same thing about followers of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the follower of Christ, who, when he decides to be a follower of Christ, does what followers of Christ are supposed to do. And what do we talk about every once in a while here at First Christian Church? What does Christianity boil down to? What are the three most important things that Jesus Christ calls his followers to do? Number one, it's to trust him. Number two is to love him with everything we've got. And number three is to obey him. That's Christianity in a nutshell. We trust him, we love him, and we obey him. And when it comes to numbers two and three... Loving Him and obeying Him, one of the greatest ways we do that is by loving our neighbor. And Jesus is going to make that so clear to us in the passage today in Luke chapter 10. So I encourage you to grab your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 10 as we look at one of the most important passages in all the book of Luke. It's the parable of the prodigal son, or as I'm calling it today, the man who loved his neighbor. 
If you're using one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 1028. Uh, For the rest of you, open to Luke chapter 10. I also encourage you, as always, to pull out those message notes along with a pencil or pen so you can fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. I don't want you just to soak it in today. I'd love for you to go back and review those notes during the week and allow God's Word to really sink in your hearts. Amen? If you're like me, if you hear it once, you'll forget most of it. But if you dive into it several times in the days that follow, God will allow those truths to really sink in. So we're in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 21. Say amen when you're there. Here we go. Starting in verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you, and we thank you for this passage that kind of segues into the parable of the prodigal son. Help us to glean from these first few verses in this passage that we just read what you want us to glean, Lord. And as we move from there into that great parable, teach us what you want to teach us through that great parable. Father, we're here to learn We're here to encounter you. We're here, Lord, because we do claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and want to follow you well. Teach us how to do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, these first four verses we just read are so important. We could easily spend a whole sermon on these four verses, but because we want to get to the parable today, I just want to hit some highlights. And so I want to tackle these four verses we just read by highlighting three insights that we can glean from these four verses. And so I want to give them to you one at a time, and we'll spend a little bit more time on the first than we will on the second and third, but really all of these are very important. Here's that first insight. Insight number one, we pull from verse 21, and it goes like this. Our greatest joy isn't found in service or even in our salvation. Our greatest joy is found in submission to the Father's sovereign will, which is the foundation for both service and salvation. Now, I realize that's a mouthful, isn't it? Let's take a few moments to allow this to sink in. If we go back and look at the verses that we studied over the last two weeks, the first 20 verses of chapter 10, this insight makes a lot more sense in verse 21. Remember what happened early in the chapter, Jesus at the top of chapter 10, uh, after having in the prior chapter sent his 12 apostles out two by two into towns to spread the good news and to spread that message that the kingdom of God is near. Here at the top of chapter 10, Jesus chose an additional 72 men. He also separated them two by two, and he sent them this time into the towns of Judea to go into the towns that Jesus was making his way to. And so unlike the 12 in chapter 9, they weren't going to different towns that Jesus wouldn't have time to go to. They were going to places where Jesus was about to go. 
And so he sends the 72 out. He gives them power, much like he did with the 12 disciples. He gave them power to drive out demons. He gave them power to heal the sick. And he gave them the authority to preach that message, the kingdom of God is near, so people could be saved. That was his ultimate goal. That was their ultimate mission, to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. And so he sends them out. We're not told how long they were gone. Maybe it was a few weeks. Maybe it was as long as a month. But they come back and remember what happened when they came back. In verse 17 of chapter 10, we read, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So did you catch the word joy in that verse? They returned with? All three of you. Great. They returned with? Joy. It's an important verse in, uh, word in verse 17. And then we get to verse 20, and Jesus says, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, being joyful about doing good ministry is good. But catch this, being joyful because you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you are saved by Jesus Christ, and you're going to heaven, the joy that comes with knowing that fact is even better than the joy that comes in doing good ministry. Amen? So Jesus says, the joy that comes with doing good ministry, it's good. It's a good kind of joy. The joy that comes from knowing me as Lord and Savior, knowing you're going to heaven, it's even a better kind of joy. So follow me on this. Verse 17, good joy. Verse 20, better joy. So what might we expect for Jesus to talk about in verse 21? Good joy, better joy, and that's exactly right. You guys are so super smart. Verse 21, look at it again. Verse 21, at that time Jesus, what? Full of joy through the Holy Spirit said. Jesus didn't just have some joy. He was full of joy. Holy Spirit joy that came straight from the heart of God. So Jesus' joy here in verse 21 is the best kind of joy. It's a kind of joy that comes in Jesus' own, own words from doing what is the Father's good pleasure. To put it another way, this best kind of joy is the kind of joy that comes from submission to the Father's sovereign will. Now, the word sovereign is not a word we use a lot today. And even in church, we don't use that word every week. And so it needs a little explanation. That word sovereign simply means that God is large and in charge. Amen? He's large and in charge. To say that God is sovereign means he ultimately has the authority, he has the power, he knows what he's doing, and his plans and his will will be carried out one way or another. He is sovereign. Amen? It's a truth about God throughout Scripture. We serve a sovereign, in-charge God. So as we submit our lives to the Father's sovereign will, Jesus is saying that brings the greatest kind of joy. Submission to the Father's sovereign will is a foundation for both our salvation and the joy that comes in our salvation. And submission to the Father's sovereign will is the foundation for the joy that comes in doing good ministry. When we think about it, if we are not at a point where we're willing to submit to God's sovereign will, we would never submit to his command to repent, would we? If we're unwilling to submit to God's sovereign will, we would never submit to his command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, would we? 
And so submission to the Father's will is foundational to salvation. You will not be saved if you do not submit to the will of the Father, because if you refuse to submit to the will of the Father, you will not follow his commands to repent and believe and be saved. Amen? And the same could be said about doing good ministry. Why on earth would you ever do good ministry if you weren't first willing to submit to the will of the Father? Why would you go out and try to share Christ with your neighbor, knowing full well your neighbor may laugh at you and say, take a hike or use some other choice words in the process? Why on earth would you do that and follow his command to share Christ with others, knowing that sometimes persecution comes when we do that? Why would you do that if you weren't first willing to submit to the will of the Sovereign Father? You wouldn't. There are plenty of commands that Jesus gives us that we have no problem carrying out. Sure, I'll do that. No problem. But then there's other commands that we don't really care to do, right? Things we don't feel like doing. Things we don't want to do. Things that we feel incapable of doing successfully. And so there are plenty of things that Jesus tells us to do. Tithing for many of us is one of those things. I don't want to give 10% back. I have a hard time paying my bills on 100% of my income. You're telling me I need to pay them on 90%? Many people say, count me out. I don't want to do that. Okay. All right, suit yourself. God says in Malachi chapter 3, test me in this. Bring in the full tithe and I'll bless you so much. You won't have enough to ha- uh, room to handle all those blessings. But if you want to do it your own way, go for it. I don't want to share my faith. I don't talk about politics or religion. It's one of my policies. God says, okay, you don't have to do it. But when we look at verses like this, we have to take the step back and say, what are we really saying to God when we refuse to obey his commands? When we refuse to obey his commands, aren't we ultimately saying, I am unwilling to submit to the sovereign will of the Father? And if you ultimately are saying, I am unwilling to submit to the sovereign will of the Father, aren't you ultimately saying that I am willing to live this entire life of mine without experiencing the joy that God designed to come in submission to the Father, and the joy that in turn can come through my salvation, and the joy that in turn can come through my faithful following of his commands to do good ministry. And so with that in mind, look at that first insight again. Our greatest joy isn't found in service, even though there is joy in service. Our greatest joy isn't found in our salvation, even though there is great joy in our salvation. Our greatest joy is found in submission to the Father's sovereign will, which is the foundation for both service and salvation. Does that make sense? Submission to the Father is the foundation for all true joy in our faith. Insight number two we pull from verse 22. Because Jesus is the only one who knows God the Father inside and out, and is the only one who can reveal the Father to others, Jesus is the only means by which humanity can know God. It's a little bit longer way of saying John 14:6 where Jesus said simply I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. Look again at verse 22. Jesus said all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In this statement, Jesus makes it clear here in this verse that he is deity. In fact, here in chapter 10, verse 22, this is Jesus' strongest claim to deity up to this point in the book of Luke. 
you look at that verse a second time and a third time, and the more you look at it, as I did this last week, the more it becomes clear Jesus, in no uncertain terms in verse 22, is claiming to be God. You can't get around that the more you read this verse and allow it to sink in. He's claiming to be God. He makes it clear that he alone knows everything there is to know about God the Father. How on earth is that possible unless he is God? He makes it clear in this verse that he in the flesh is the only one who truly knows the Father, and the Father is the only one who truly knows him through and through. And then he even goes as far as to say, no one can understand or know the Father unless the Son, Jesus, chooses to reveal the Father to that person. And so Jesus not only is the only one who knows the Father inside and out, backward and forward, he's saying he's the only one who can reveal the Father to anyone. In other words, if Jesus does not choose to reveal the Father to you, you cannot and will not know him. That's a pretty bold statement, don't you think? In no uncertain terms in verse 22, Jesus is making it clear that he is God in human flesh. Insight number three, we find in verses 23 and 24, Christ's messengers are truly privileged people. I love that insight. Those verses should be very encouraging to you as you read through those. He turns to his disciples, where his disciples schooled rabbis, not even close. A ragtag bunch of fishermen and a tax collector, a guy that would eventually betray him. These were not trained religious giants. They were not intellectual giants. They were not financial tycoons. These were everyday guys. And Jesus turns to them, these 12 disciples, and he says what? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. And then verse 24, For I tell you that many prophets and kings, those were the important guys in Old Testament times, right? The kings were the wealthy, rich, powerful guys if you got a yearbook you wanted the king to sign it he was the man look at hey look at this i don't care about all the other kids in my class i got the king's signature here he was the important one and yet the many kings longed to see what the disciples got to see and they didn't get to see it they longed to hear what the 12 apostles got to hear and those kings didn't get to hear it same thing with those prophets and those priests from old testament times jesus said they longed to experience what you have experienced Oh, Jesus, in essence, says, you, my disciples, are very privileged people. And how many of you would agree with me when I say that we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ in 2019 are very privileged people? Amen? We are very privileged people. The kings and the priests and the prophets of old longed to see what you and I get to see, the movement of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people today. Those priests and those prophets and those kings long to hear what you and I get to hear every single week and every single day if we choose the Word of God in the New Testament that they long to hear and understand. Uh, Just this morning we were in Hebrews 7 in the adult Sunday school class looking at some insights about the Old Testament priest Melchizedek, things that the Jewish people could not even begin to understand, but we can begin to understand them because Jesus has revealed them to us in His Word. Amen? We are a privileged people, and we should never 
take this great privilege of being saved, bought with the blood of Christ, redeemed people for granted. Amen. Let's turn to the Good Samaritan, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responded, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself, so he tested Jesus. He asked asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus asked? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I love this parable, don't you? According to verse 25, why did this Jewish lawyer ask Jesus this question about eternal life? What does it say in verse 25? That expert in the law, that Jewish religious lawyer, he stood up to test Jesus. So he doesn't ask this question because... He honored and admired Jesus. He didn't ask this question because he didn't think he already knew the answer to this question. He didn't ask this question even for the sake of the rest of the crowd who would be able to hear Jesus answer this question correctly and the crowd could be convinced all the more that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah. He asked this question not for any of those reasons. He asked this question in order to embarrass Jesus in order to somehow trick Jesus into saying something stupid, something that was against the Old Testament law, something that would expose him as a fraud, a fake rabbi, a faux rabbi in front of all the crowds who up to this point were hanging on his every word. He didn't ask it for a good reason. He asked it with an evil malice intent. According to verse 25, the Jewish legal expert asked this question in order to test Jesus. And what was his question? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we could pick apart this question and find some problems with this question. Uh, Look at that question again. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a problem in the wording of this question because inherit and earn 
should never coexist. Right? Because by definition, an inheritance is something that you are given, not because you somehow earned it or deserved it, but simply for the fact that you're in that family and you're next in line. Now, some people get ornery today and they say, I don't like my son or my daughter, so I'm going to give my inheritance to someone else. That happens on occasion. But as a rule of thumb, inheritance is not something you earn or deserve, right? It's simply something that's given to you. So his very question here, teacher, must I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a bogus question, but Jesus doesn't get caught up in the semantics. He simply proceeds to follow up this man's question with a question of his own. It's one of the, my favorite parts of Jesus' interactions with his critics. He would so often do this. They ask a question that they thought Jesus was going to botch up the answer to, and Jesus simply asked them a follow-up question. And what's his follow-up question? Jesus asks him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with a question. Well, what do you think? What's written in the law? How do you read it? And so Jesus is giving this Old Testament legal expert an opportunity that he couldn't pass up. In front of all these people in this big crowd, Jesus is giving this expert in Jewish law an opportunity to show the whole crowd how smart he was. And he wasn't about to pass up that opportunity. Jesus is giving him the opportunity to wax eloquently about the finer points of the Old Testament law. Of all those 613 laws, you tell us what's the most important. And so the man couldn't pass up this opportunity. He responds to Jesus' follow-up questions by answering, Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's his answer to the question. So that first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And then secondly, he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Now think about it. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 8, what does Moses do? After giving that great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he proceeds in the next few verses to say, I want you to teach this command and really all these commands to your kids and grandkids. And I want you to teach them by talking about them when you're walking down the road. And I want you to talk about them when you're sitting down. He even takes it a step further, remember? He says, I want you to nail them on the doorposts of your house. And I want you to hang them from your wrists and from your forehead these commands. And so the Jewish people for centuries took Deuteronomy 6 verse 8 seriously. And they started creating these little scripture boxes. And inside these little scripture boxes, they would put the little slips of parchment that would have Deuteronomy 6, 5, and 6 in there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Oftentimes, they would put that second scripture in there, the Leviticus 19:18. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I want you to imagine these legalistic Jews would oftentimes wear these little scripture boxes around their wrists or hanging from thread or twine from their foreheads. These were called phylacteries. Here's a picture of an Orthodox Jew today wearing one of these little scripture boxes, one of these phylacteries on his head. It looks like a little Abraham Lincoln top hat, you know, right there in his forehead. 
So even today, Orthodox Jews will wear these little phylacteries, and inside that little box are little scriptures that they think are most important in the Old Testament law. So imagine if if this Jewish legal expert was showing off his phylactery to this crowd, and he's got his little Abraham Lincoln phylactery top hat on his forehead, and he asked Jesus the question as he's swinging his little phylactery around, hey, Jesus, what is the most important command in the law? And Jesus responds to this guy with his little top hat by asking the follow-up question, how do you read it? What do you think is the most important law? In other words, Jesus may have been saying with his question, tell me what's in your little box there on your forehead. Tell me what's in your little box. What do you think are the most important scriptures? And he, in all likelihood, as he mentions the two greatest commands, mentions two scriptures that were right there in his little box on his forehead. He knew those scriptures well. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus says simply, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I imagine a few seconds of awkward silence at this point. Jesus is looking at the man. The man's looking at Jesus. Jesus is more comfortable with the silence than the man is. He thinks, is there a catch to Jesus' answer? It doesn't sound like the conversation should be over quite this fast. And so he asks the follow-up question, as it says, to justify himself. And who is my neighbor? Jesus takes it and runs with it, doesn't he? Who is my neighbor? Evidently, the legal eagle thought that Jesus was going to say that his neighbor was the guy who lived next door in his upper-middle-class neighborhood. Maybe he thought that his neighbor, Jesus would say, was his fellow priest serving at the temple. Never in a million years would this legal eagle think that Jesus would tell him that his neighbor was going to be a stranger who was half dead, having been mugged on the side of the road. Never would he have imagined that Jesus would mention the guy who had been mugged as his neighbor who he was supposed to love. Now, most of you know the story really well. It's one of Jesus' most famous parables. The city of Jerusalem is situated on top of a a small mountain in southern Israel. Uh, The city of Jerusalem sits at about 2,400 feet above sea level. Now, it doesn't seem very high for a mountain, but bear in mind that that mountain rises above the Dead Sea Valley, which is the lowest landmass on earth. That Dead Sea Valley is over 1,000 feet below sea level. And Jericho, which is just outside the Dead Sea River Valley, Dead Sea Valley, I should say, is about 850 feet below sea level. So Jesus is talking about this travel from 2,400 feet down 20 miles to 850 feet below sea level. So that's a change of about 3,200 feet in about... 20 miles. So we can wrap our minds around this by imagining if you were at the top of the pass there in Oak Hills and you wanted to hike down to San Bernardino, that's not quite a 3,200 foot drop. So imagine in 20 miles, about that same distance between Oak Hills and San Bernardino, at least the near side of it, imagine about that same, niche, uh, same distance with a steeper grade than the top part of the pass. And there's no asphalt. No paved roads. So as you can imagine, that trek 
20 miles down with that drop in elevation, it was a rocky, dangerous trip down the road, and there were plenty of places where robbers could hide. I was surprised. I never knew this before. Up until the early 1930s, that road was still notorious for having bandits jump out and stop travelers. In the early 1930s, there was an infamous bandit there between Jerusalem and Jericho who would actually stop cars and rob the people and then head back into the hills before the police could arrive. So for centuries, there was this epidemic with this road being dangerous. And so for centuries, what any Jew would tend to do would be to travel in a caravan because there was safety in numbers. And so Jesus tells this story here, something that was very believable, even if this wasn't an actual man who was mugged, helped by an actual Samaritan. This was a very believable story because this type of thing happened all the time. If someone was foolhardy enough to travel on their own, they were asking for it. There was a very high probability that they would get mugged. And that's what happens to this certain man traveling. And as he travels and he gets mugged, they beat him to within an inch of his life. And they, lie, they leave him there naked on the side of the road. The man's helpless, bruised and bleeding. He can't even get up on his own. And so a priest comes down the road, and that priest, as he comes down the road, he clearly sees the man lying there, but instead of helping him, he scoots to the other side of the road, and he kept walking. After all, according to Jewish law, that priest would be defiled for a full week if he touched a man who ended up dying. And he wouldn't want to be defiled for a week, would he? So he passed by on the other side. Obviously, the priest valued his ceremonial cleanliness more than he valued the fate of a dying stranger. Next came a priest's assistant, a man called a Levite. He, too, counted the cost, and he didn't get involved either. He passed by on the other side of the road just like the priest had. Finally, a despised Samaritan came by. The Jewish people like this legal expert, hated the Samaritans. They called them half-breeds. They didn't allow them to come to Jerusalem. But this Samaritan happened to be coming by, and when he saw the half-dead man, he took pity on him. And here we have one of those few uses of my very favorite word in the New Testament. Splach mitzomai. He had this gut-wrenching compassion for that man. Remember that root word splach now means guts. And the verb form is a word that's only used of Jesus or by Jesus in the New Testament. So as Jesus is telling this story, he uses that great word splach nitsomai. As the Samaritan saw the man half dead on the side of the road, his heart broke for the man. His compassion was poured out for the man. And you know it was a true compassion because he didn't just feel bad and keep walking. He gets down on his hands and knees and he tends to the man's wounds. He pours uh, wine on those wounds because that alcohol would sterilize them and kill some of the bacteria. And then he puts oil on those wounds and those bruises because oil was the best thing that any traveler would have on them to help soothe those injuries and help lessen the pain. And so he takes care of those wounds and he bands bandages them up and he lifts the man up and puts him on his own donkey and walks his donkey with the man on it down to the nearest inn. 
He takes care of the man over the course of that night and the next day gives those two silver coins to the innkeeper and says, please, take care of him. Uh, Spare no expense. Do whatever you need to do to take care of him. I'll be back in a few days. And if you've spent any more beyond these two silver coins, I will pay you in full for any care that you give to this man. He had mercy on him. He had mercy on him. Jesus asked that legal expert the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the legal expert responded, the one who had splach mitzomai. He actually, in this case, uses a different word. He didn't use that same word for mercy. He uses a lesser form. He's the one that had mercy on him. Notice he doesn't say, the Samaritan was the one that did the right thing. He didn't want to say the name Samaritan. He just simply says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus, in essence, responds by saying, that's what God means when he tells you to love your neighbor. Go and do the same thing that the Samaritan did. You want to know who your neighbor is? The Samaritan was the neighbor that did what God called him to do. And he took care of his neighbor, the man who was on the side of the road half dead. I'd like to share with you a marvelous insight that I'm just going to share the exact quote of Pastor Chuck Swindoll because I think the wording is is just brilliant. Now, when I first read this, uh, some of you know uh, my girls' Christian school this last quarter, they needed some help teaching English. They lost their English teacher. And so I've been teaching uh, English on Mondays and Tuesdays. And so when I read this sentence as a temporary English teacher, boy, this really set me off because this is not good grammar here. This is not good English here. But there's a reason Chuck Swindoll said it the way that he says it. And I want to share it with you the exact way that he shares it. I think it's a marvelous insight. Here's how it goes. What you are determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. I look at those first three words and that just sends off signal flares in my English mind. What you are. No, 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 no. It's who you are. No, he says it's actually what you are. Let me explain. In the parable, all three men saw the half-dead man on the side of the road, right? All three men saw him. Jesus is very clear that the Levites saw him and the priests saw him and the Samaritans saw him. All three saw him. But why on earth didn't the first two men do anything to help him? Well, because what we do is determined by what we see. Let's start with the end of that little quote and work our way backwards. Ultimately, what we do is determined by what we see. And what did they see when they saw that man half dead on the side of the road? The priest and the Levite looked at that man on the side of the road and they saw, first of all, an inconvenience. They saw a waste of their precious time. They saw a blemish on their ceremonial purity. You see, what they saw determined what they did. Because they saw an inconvenience and because they saw a man who could corrupt their ceremonial purity and because they saw a waste of their precious time, they didn't act as the Samaritan acted. And why on earth did they see the man that way? Because of what they were. Because of what they were. You see, the priest and the Levite 
were a couple of religious snobs. It's just a reality. They were a couple of religious snobs. Their religion was all head and no heart. When their Jewish religion really could make a difference in a hurting person's lives, when their religion really mattered for something, they checked out. They were spiritually bankrupt. And they were not saved. When their religion really mattered, they took a pass. I hope and pray that we never take a pass today when our religion really matters. Jesus, through this parable, asks some very important implied questions. He doesn't flat out say this, but they're certainly implied as he shares this parable. He basically asks them, how could you possibly inherit eternal life if you have no mercy? How could you possibly inherit eternal life if you have no compassion on hurting people? How could you possibly be saved if your religion takes a pass when it matters the most? You see him subtly asking those questions through this parable. The priest and the Levite didn't do the right thing because they didn't see the hurting man through the eyes of Jesus. And they didn't see the hurting man through the eyes of Jesus because they were not followers of Jesus. You see, what we are determines what we see. And what we see determines what we do. So let me ask you, what are you? What are you? Not who are you, what are you? And I certainly hope and pray that every single person in this room could say, what am I? I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. What am I? I'm a child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What am I? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And where he goes, I go. And what he says do, I do. And what he sees, I do my best with these carnal eyes of mine in the sinful world in which I live. I do my very best to see people as he sees people. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will do your best to see every man, woman, and child as your neighbor who is fair game for Christ's mercy and fair game for Christ's compassion and fair game for Christ's love extended so beautifully through you. Do you want to be the hands of Jesus Christ? You can be. Do you want to be the eyes of Jesus Christ in this sinful, hurting world? You can be. Do you want to be the mouthpiece for Jesus Christ in this hurting world? You can be. I've heard this story repeated over talk radio over the last week. There's a guy that gets on the local AM 960 and tells patriotic stories, and oftentimes there's a Christian message through him. He was telling this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but he was saying that this college professor came to town and uh, he got up on the first day of class, and he started just railing about how God is not real. God is dead. God is not alive. And he starts blaspheming God up one side and down the other, and he spends the first ten minutes of his class telling his class how foolish it is to believe in God. And he says, in fact, if God is real, I challenge you right now, God, I defy you in the next five minutes to knock me off this podium to show that you are real. The class is just stunned. 
And so he keeps going off about how fake God is and how dead God is and this and that. And the five minutes is almost up. It's been about four minutes and 40 seconds. And a linebacker from the back of the class comes up. And he goes, boom, and knocks the guy not only off the stage but slams him into the side wall. The professor gets himself back up on his feet and he turns to the linebacker and says, what on earth did you do that for? And he responds by saying, well, God told me he was a little bit busy. He sent me in his place. Silly story with a great message. God sends you and me to be his hands, to be his feet, to be his mouth, to be his eyes. He sends you and me. Like the good Samaritan, you and I must see people the way Jesus sees people. Because of what we are. We are faithful messengers. Followers of Jesus Christ. Placed here. To make a difference for the kingdom of God. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for sending us. Lord, we get scared about sharing our faith. Lord, I I doubt there's anyone in this room that would say, I love conflict. Lord, we don't like conflict. And sometimes bringing up Jesus, it feels like we're stirring the pot. Lord, it's not easy to know what to do. When we're walking into that store and there's that homeless guy sitting there up against the wall that's obviously not showered in three months, Lord, it's hard to know what to do. And so, God, we have to be able to see what you see. And to be your hands and feet, Lord, because we don't know on our own what to do in that situation. Lord, it's hard to know what to do with our next door neighbor who comes and goes and we just have a quick hello or friendly wave. God, it's hard to know how to reach out to our coworker or our classmate. It's hard to know how to reach out sometimes to those living under the same roof that we are, our parents or our our siblings, Lord, or our kids or grandkids, Lord, sometimes it's so hard to know how we should be seeing them, how we should be speaking to them, how we should be reaching them. So, God, would you in your mercy transform our eyes? Some of us, Lord, Lord, need an eye transplant. We need to be able to see what you see. Some of us, Lord, need hand transplants to to reach out in a loving and compassionate and merciful way, in a way that doesn't come naturally for us. Some of us need some feet transplants. Not because our feet stink, that's true that they do, but, Lord, simply because we need to know where you want us to walk to, to do ministry. Lord, you've given us these spiritual gifts, and sometimes we don't know how best to use these spiritual gifts. You've given us these experiences and these talents, and we don't know how best to use them. But I pray, O oh God, that even today, even this week, you would give us blatantly obvious opportunities to see what you see, to speak as you speak, and to reach out in mercy and splachnitzo my compassion to those who need the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus through us. Help us, Lord. Guide us, Lord. Teach us, Lord. 
Transform us and change us, Lord. To be your compassionate servants. For your glory. What are we? We're new creations in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Make us like you. In Jesus' name.